You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Today I have a really great story for you about the game of football, which may actually come as a surprise to some of you because I am probably one of the three American males that have absolutely no interest in the sport. Absolutely none. But get a load of these scores. October 6, 1928, Weymouth High School beats Salem Trade 13-6. October 30th, 1928, Walpole High crushed Salem Trade 27-0. September 21st, 1929, Winthrop High defeated Salem Trade 14-6. September 29th, 1929, Chelsea High walloped Salem Trade 24-0. This is just a random sampling of some of the games that Salem Trade High School played. Do you sense some sort of trend here that, you know, maybe they couldn't win a game? At the time, Salem Trade was by far the worst team in the Boston region. Any opposing team that opted to play against them was nearly assured a win. But then something highly unusual happened. On October 5th of 1929, Salem Trade beat Taunton High 6-0. Holy cow, incredible, they won a game. They had never won a game before. One would think that the fans from Salem Trade attending the game would have been screaming in joy at the team's first ever win. But they weren't. There was not a single student in the stands from the Salem Trade School. Well, maybe no one from the school attended the game, but surely once the news got back to the school's campus, there would be a joyous celebration of their victory. Well, that was not to be either. Why? The answer to that question came 11 days after their big win. The shocking news of October 16, 1929, was that while Salem Trade had their own football, baseball, and basketball teams, they didn't have a school building. In fact, there weren't any classrooms, administrators, teachers, or anything. In reality, there was no school at all. It was a dummy school that existed solely to play sports and earn some money. At no point during the six years that Salem Trade played legitimate high schools around the region, had a single person ever bothered to check to see if they were a real school or not. Now the fact that the team always played their games away from home should have been a big hint, but no one ever picked up on it. What finally exposed the team's secret was that big win over Taunton High. It turns out that all the Salem Trade students were not high school students at all. In fact, they were adults with other jobs. 
One guy was a chauffeur, another was a leather worker, and yet another was a tailor's apprentice. Each player was supposedly paid to be on the team, which of course is against the rules of high school sports. Their halfback, a guy named Mike Iwanicki, had scored the winning touchdown, and now he demanded to be paid $10, or about $140 today. He wanted $10 per game for his services. And then soon others on the team were also demanded to be paid anywhere from $2.50 to $10 per game. The manager of the team, Harold King Burgess, refused to give in to their demands, and that's when the players decided to blow the whistle on the scam. They told the press that Burgess received advances ranging from $25 to $160 for each game that was played. As surprising as this may sound today, this was not unusual back in the 1920s. Many high school teams of the day were funded by sponsors and by a portion of the gate receipts. This money was then used to buy uniforms, equipment, pay for food and lodging, you know, and as well as to cover the cost of transporting the team from one location to another. In exchange for playing the games, Burgess promised the players sweaters and letters at the end of the season, a trip to the Big Apple, as well as a postseason game to be played somewhere in Michigan. The whistleblowers claimed that they never saw any of the proceeds from the games, and apparently Burgess had pocketed nearly all the profit. Although coaches from other teams later commented that there was probably little of it because the team was not charging enough for each game to cover its expenses. The team had only received $90, that's about $1,250 today, to play their winning game over Taunton High. Most likely none of the players ever received a single penny for their efforts. The scheme works something like this. The athletic director at each school would receive a letter or a phone call from either Harold Burgess himself or one of his assumed identities. That could be Richie King, Richard King, or Ray King. No one had ever seen the man who made the arrangements directly. Burgess's trick to not getting caught was quite simple. The team was to try and keep the scores realistic, but under no circumstances would they ever win a game. To do so would bring unnecessary attention to the school, which they certainly didn't want. It was really a smart move on his part, since the spotlight typically only shines on a winner. So just who was Harold Burgess? Besides being the superintendent, principal, team manager, coach, captain, and quarterback for the fictitious school, in real life Burgess had only completed school up through the 8th grade. He worked as an automobile mechanic, he was married, and he was the proud father of a young girl. And here's the most amazing fact. Harold Burgess was only 22 years old when the story broke in the press. That means he was just 16 when he came up with the idea to form the Salem Trade School. Get this straight, Burgess was quoted in the Boston Globe. Before you go saying that I didn't play square with my men, I didn't pay him anything to save our opponents from being professionals. If I had paid the Salem Trade Gang anything, then everyone, see everyone, against whom we played would have lost their amateur status. I kept my boys pure so they wouldn't contaminate the others. He added, Sure, some of the fellows were a bit old, but after a year or so, we were going to become a college. I guess there's nothing in the rule book to stop a non-existent high school from becoming an equally non-existent college. It's just crazy. 
One would think that that would have been the end of the Salem Trade football team, but it was surprisingly not. It was announced that they would play a previously scheduled game against Maynard High on November 23rd. Maynard's faculty manager and coach Donald Lentz stated that, quote, it would be practically impossible to fill a Salem Trade date with a team of equal drawing power, and we're going to go through with the game. In other words, if they can fill all the seats in the stands, Maynard would see gobs of cash to help further support their team. By game day, Salem Trade had a nearly new lineup. Only Burgess and one other player remained from the original team. Even worse, they had never, ever played together before. The Boston Globe reported, quote, Before the opening whistle, Captain Burgess' Salem Trade team held a reception at a bench on the sidelines in order to acquaint the members of the team with each other. Needless to say, Maynard High was the decided favorite in this game. The game was not without some surprises. First, there was an uprising among the Salem ranks during the second quarter. This resulted in a former Iceman named Red Grange replacing Burgess as the quarterback. This was followed by Salem Trade halfback sprinting with the ball towards the wrong goal line before being redirected by another player. The game ended in a surprising 1919 tie before, quote, the smallest crowd that has ever attended a football game here in years. Now, one could blame the poor attendance on the fake Salem team, but my guess is that people had bigger problems on their minds at the time. Keep in mind that Black Tuesday had just passed a few weeks earlier, and many people were sucked into that incredible vacuous hole known as the Great Depression. Yet the team kept going. The next season, Salem Trade was back on the field, and on September 20th, Salem somehow managed to shut out Chelsea High 2 to nothing. After that, they just lost game after game. A short one-sentence statement in the September 21st, 1931 Boston Globe stated, quote, Information here in regard to Salem Trade indicates that the team will not operate this season. Salem Trade was to never play another football game. As for Harold King Burgess, he made a few more attempts at operating fictitious football teams. That includes the Parker School for Boys of Boston, Portsmouth, Rhode Island High, and also Greenfield, New Hampshire High School. That last one was exposed as being a fraud on September 30th of 1936. The Boston Globe caught up with Burgess 30 years after they first exposed the fraudulent team to the world. He offered up the following additional information. Quote, nobody ever asked to see the school. He added, I could have showed them easily enough if I was forced. I guess I was the only combined principal, coach, and athletic director who carried his buildings, his campus, and his faculty around in his pocket. It wasn't much of a secret in Salem. They were bound to know that there was no Salem trade, but mostly they went along. Nobody bothered us, except maybe the cops who used to chase us off the common sometimes when we were practicing. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? 
Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hey, fellas and gals, when you've been in school or out playing all day, I'll bet that you get home about as hungry as a starving giant, don't you? Now, I don't know what giants do when they get hungry, but here's the smartest thing that you can do. First of all, make tracks for that Peter Pan jar and fix yourself a whopping thick, wonderful-tasting peanut butter sandwich. Just slap it on extra thick. You know, Peter Pan is made of specially selected fresh roasted peanuts that are just bursting with extra good flavor. They're ground up extra smooth and packed right away before any of that wonderful fresh roasted peanut flavor can escape. And then, Peter Pan's special vacuum seal jar top locks that flavor in for sure. Oh, man. That's why Peter Pan's always so smooth and fresh. Doesn't get stale or stick to the roof of your mouth. That's why it's always got that really swell peanut flavor. Right down to the last tiniest smidgen way down there in the bottom of the jar. Yup, just you take one bite, and you'll know why Peter Pan's the favorite peanut butter of wide-awake guys and gals all over the country. And don't you forget, gang, Peter Pan's a real good energy food, too. It's loaded with the extra pep, the extra energy that you need to be a real top-notcher in games and schoolwork. Why not ask your mom to bring you some home tomorrow, huh? Then next time that you're kind of hungry... Fix yourself the tastiest treat in the whole wide world. A sandwich made of Peter Pan, America's favorite peanut butter. That commercial for Peter Pan peanut butter is from the April 12th, 1951 broadcast of the kids' show Sky King. This particular episode was titled The Lady Sheriff. Did the voice of the announcer sound somewhat familiar? It was none other than Mike Wallace, who later achieved fame as one of the hosts of 60 Minutes on CBS. Now, when the show was recorded, he was still using his given name of Myron Wallace. Early peanut butter suffered from two major problems. First, the peanut oil would separate and turn rancid. Second, when the added salt separated, it would crystallize. So as a result, grocers were told to stir their tubs of peanut butter frequently. In 1901, English chemist William Norman came up with a way to stabilize the oils that turned peanuts and other beans rancid. This is a process known as hydrogenation, and I had talked about it in a previous podcast. It basically turned the liquid oil into an edible solid. In 1922, Joseph L. Rosefield was the first to apply the process of hydrogenation to peanut butter. He licensed his patented process to Swift and Company, who had already been selling their own brand of less stable peanut butter under the name E.K. Pond. Initially, the newly formulated product sold very poorly, so in 1928, they changed the name to something more memorable, Peter Pan Peanut Butter. Sales took off soon after that. But things didn't go so smoothly between Rosefield and Swift. By 1932, their relationship had deteriorated and Rosefield decided it was time to strike out on his own. His new brand was called Skippy, supposedly named after a popular comic strip of the day, and he offered it in both creamy and chunky styles. In 1955, Procter & Gamble decided they also wanted a piece of the peanut butter market, so they purchased the Big Top Peanut Butter brand. After a bit of tinkering with the formula, basically added molasses and sugar, they reintroduced their peanut butter recipe to the market under the new name of Jif. It has been the best-selling peanut butter in the U.S. since 1981. In other news, here are a few stories that deal with a few of the biggest musical acts in history. 
Let's start with a story from the 1950s. A syndicated column by John Crosby that appeared in the press on June 18th of 1956 was titled, Performers Gyrations May Doom Rock and Roll. Of course, he's talking about Elvis Presley, and Crosby truly hated him. Quote, the last appearance of this unspeakably untalented and vulgar young entertainer brought forth such a storm of complaints both from the press and public that I imagine any entertainer would hesitate to try him again on television. Crosby supported his case against Elvis with a quote from Harry A. Feldman, the head of the music department at Bryan High School. Quote, the guest performer Elvis Presley presented such a demonstration which was in execrable taste bordering on obscenity. The gyrations of this young man were such an assault to the senses as to repel even the most tolerant observer. A California policeman added, quote, if he did that on the street, we'd arrest him. Crosby offered more than criticism as to why Elvis was so popular. His theory was that all of the awful rock and roll music on radio could be traced back to a battle between the radio broadcasters and ASCAP, that's the publishers, over royalties that started just prior to the outbreak of World War II. That resulted in ASCAP pulling all of its music off the air, which meant that, quote, the good composers, Irving Berlin, Rodgers and Hammerstein and the like, had their songs forced off the air, and with a few exceptions, their songs are still off of it. That hole created by the lack of his so-called good composers created a vacuum that was filled by what he considered to be bad music, Elvis included. I guess some people just find themselves on the wrong side of history. Let's move on to the 60s. Elvis was replaced on the charts by the Beatles, and not everyone loved them either. After their first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, Lawrence Duran offered the following explanation on February 12th of 1964 as to what was really going on. Quote, they are apparently part of some kind of malicious bilateral entertainment trade agreement. The British have to sit through dozens of dreadful American television programs. In return, we get the Beatles. As usual, we got gypped. Nothing we have exported in recent years quite justifies imported hillbillies who look like sheepdogs and sound like alley cats in agony. Ouch. George McKinnon, writing in the February 16, 1964 edition of the Boston Globe, offered this advice, quote, Don't let the Beatles bother you. If you don't think about them, they will go away, and in a few more years, they'll probably be bald. Conservative writer William F. Buckley didn't hold anything back while writing about the Beatles in his syndicated column on September 9th of 1964. Quote, the Beatles are not merely awful. I would consider it sacrilegious to say anything less than they are god-awful. They are unbelievably horrible, so appallingly unmusical, so dogmatically insensitive to the magic of art that they qualify as the crowned heads of anti-music. And lastly, here's a shorter and far less critical story regarding the band that practically defined the 70s. That's the Bee Gees. And clearly a lot of people loved their music while some truly hated the Brothers Gibb. A February 12, 1971 article discusses something that, if it had really happened, could have saved some of those haters from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and all of that derivative disco music that it spawned. It was reported that an anonymous male called the officer Robert Stigwood, the Bee Gees manager, who coincidentally recently passed away, and threatened to blow up the Bee Gees. Can you imagine? 
The caller said he was going to plant a bomb in the reception room at the Hampshire House Hotel in New York just before the Bee Gees were scheduled to arrive that afternoon. Police cordoned off the area around the hotel and did a search, but they failed to locate a bomb. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I haven't forgot about the question of the day. It's definitely the part of the show that I received the most complaints about, so I opted today to place it near the end of the podcast. So here's the question. What company manufactured the first men's brief underwear? You may know them better by their nickname, you know, Tidy Whities. Here are your choices. Was it one BVD, two Fruit of the Loom, three Hanes, or four Jockey? Again, which of these four companies first marketed Tidy Whities? BVD, Fruit of the Loom, Hanes, or Jockey? Well, the answer is choice number four, Jockey. The designer of the new underwear was a guy named Arthur Niebler, who was hired by Cooper Underwear Company in 1928 to head its sales and marketing department. The story goes that his inspiration came in 1934 from a postcard that he received from a friend visiting the French Riviera. It pictured a man in what was probably a scandalous at the time bikini-style swimsuit. The product debuted at Chicago's Marshall Field Department Store on January 19th of 1935. All 600 packages were sold out by noon that very day. And very quickly, Jockey became a national sensation. Now, contrary to popular belief, the name Jockey has nothing to do with horse racing. Cooper Underwear chose the name Jockey for the product because it offers support previously only found in jock straps. Well, that brings this episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. As always, you can find additional true stories just like the one that you heard on my website, which is uselessinformation.org, or in the two books that are written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can do so by doing a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or just about any other podcast indexing service, and then you get automatic updates when a new episode is released. Well, thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.